the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 54. God's Word in Luke 11, beginning in verse 37, says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms, as alms those things that are within you, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. For you, and he said to him, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Lord, we don't come just to hear what a mere man has to say. We want to hear you speak. We want to hear your word, and we ask that you would speak through a broken vessel and allow us to hear you calling us, exhorting us, warning us, and all that you do with your mighty word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever played a part? Maybe it's charades gestures or some other game where you're acting and you're trying to get people to guess who you are by how you're playing that part. Or maybe you've played in a theater. Well, we all know while that person is acting, that's not actually reality. That's why when a few months ago, Keith played in the play A Tale of Two Cities and played the role of Jerry Crutcher, the drunk grave robber, we didn't have people come in and go, um, I'm a little concerned about Keith. Did you know he goes out at night and he opens up graves and he takes bodies out and takes their gold and their rings and he's drunk all the time? Well, no one said that because they're like, well, that's a part. That's not actually him. And we all know that. However, sometimes we like to play parts in real life. We put on a mask, so to speak, and we want everyone to think 
we are the way the mask portrays. Yeah, I've told this story before, but it's worth sharing again. This isn't a true story, by the way. I'm not indicting anyone. There is this mother, all flustered, because it was the day that guests were going to come over, and she's frantically cleaning the house, trying to make the food, trying to get the kids, and anything that's clean and presentable. And then finally, when they show up, they sit down for the meal, and the daughter, she says to her daughter, would you pray? And the daughter says, well, I don't know what to pray. She says, well, just pray whatever you hear mommy pray. And she goes, oh, okay. God, why did they have to come today? You know, the mom is playing this part of, I'm so glad y'all are here. And she opens the door and, oh, isn't this wonderful? Yes, we're glad you're here. But the reality is, any day but today, could you not have come today? And yet she's playing this part. Now we realize, or hopefully you realize, being honest and true doesn't mean you have to be bluntly harsh. You know, it's not playing a part to have manners. If someone says to you, do these jeans make me look fat? You don't need to go, well, actually, fat's too low. You look obese. You look like a sausage about to burst. Well, that's not being honest. That's being rude. That's not what we're talking about in playing a part. There's a, such a sense of tact, decorum in life. And yet, we all know when we're not just being tactful or trying to have decorum, but we're actually deceiving. We're putting forward this is how my life is, when in fact it's something much different. And one of the worst areas in which we can pretend is our spiritual life. We act that we're a godly, pious person, when in fact the reality is not that at all. And Jesus deals with that this very morning in the passage we're looking at, because he's dealing with religious leaders who they profess, we're pure, we're godly, we're on the way to life. And yet Jesus is going to tell them, no, in fact, you're impure. You're ungodly, and though you think you're on the way to life, you're actually on the way to death and leading others there too. As we look at this passage, we'll see three main things. This is on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with that. First, in verses 37 through 41, there's the concern of only looking good on the outside. Then in verses 42 through 44, we only majoring on what's trivial, and then lastly, in verses 45 to 54, are we actually hating God's people or prophets? But first, in verses 37 through 41, we see that Jesus has invited this meal. And really, this is going all the way back to chapter 11 right here, verse 14. It's been one day, because the day began with him casting out the demons. And then some people are going, well, he only casts them out because Beelzebub, the power of all the demons, he's helping them. And then others say, well, we just want to see more signs. Can you do some more? And Jesus responds to them, showing logically the only way he could do these things, cast out demons, is by the finger of God. And then after that, he calls all of them to repentance. And so right after this, is he's saying all of them need to come to repentance. And some of you, you may think you're light, but you're actually darkness. This Pharisee invites him over with other religious leaders, this big luncheon. And we see Jesus' interaction with this Pharisee. Now, what are Pharisees? Well, a Pharisee comes from the word paras, or feras, which literally means to separate. Pharisees were people who separated themselves. They separated themselves from Gentiles. They separated themselves from 
unclean or sinful people in their culture. They separated themselves by doing all these things that the law said and also all the ways that them and the teachers of the law had added to it. And they thought, well, we're good people. We're moral because we have separated ourselves. We're pure and clean. They think by living this way, by doing all these things, they're better than others even. We even saw that earlier in Luke 7.37. Jesus was invited to another Pharisee's house. And while there, a woman who is known to be a sinner comes and weeps at Jesus' feet. She's so overcome that Jesus would forgive her. Well, the Pharisee isn't overjoyed. He's not thinking, well, this is wonderful. Someone's come to repentance. This is what we're supposed to be all about. No, he looks at scorn at her and thinks, how could Jesus ever let a person like that come close to him? You know, Pharisees are all about separation. Keep the immoral out there and the pure here. Yet, Jesus is going to show them as he did in chapter 7, there is a different way. And in fact, that's all hypocrisy. But notice this interesting thing. Jesus over and over disagrees with the Pharisees, yet he still goes and he eats with them. This is the exact opposite of our polarized society today. Jesus will still interact with people he doesn't agree with. He showed true tolerance. Because while he didn't approve of all the behavior and all the beliefs of these people, he was willing to accept them and care for them as a person. You know, love them enough to care for them, but then also say when they did something that was wrong. Here he eats with the Pharisee, but then he's going to condemn the group at large. You know, we need to emulate Jesus in this. There might be people that we would never agree with on certain issues, but we should still love them and care for them enough to be with them. Not that we condone their beliefs or behaviors, but that we still care for them. Well, here in verse 39, Jesus recognizes something, and that is when he didn't wash his hands, the Pharisee is going, eh, he didn't wash his hands. Now, this is not just a fastidious mother saying, did you wash your hands for dinner? This is not about hygiene. This is about ceremonial laws that the Pharisees had added to the scriptures. They said, look, You need to wash your hands in this ceremonial way to be pure and clean. So it's not about hygiene at all. But Jesus says, look, you're focusing only on the outside of the person, not the inside. And he illustrates it using cups and dishes. I don't know about you, but periodically I'll be getting down bowls. Bowls seem to be the worst at this. And setting them around the table. And as I'm setting them out, one of them is just filled with gunk. That somehow as the stream and the jets and the pressure of the washing dishwasher cleaned them, didn't get to it. And there it's all crusted on. Well, I don't go, well, the outside looks pretty good. I'll use this one too. You go, oh, because the inside's dirty, the whole thing's no good. Put it back in the dishwasher. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees are just the opposite. They go, well, look at the outside of my life. I'm not hanging out with sinners. I don't do these things. I wash my hands ceremonially. I'm a wonderful person. And Jesus is saying, it's not just what's outside of a person that matters, but also what's going on inside. Because inside, he says, y'all are greedy. You love money and you're wicked. You know, they claim to love God, 
but inside their heart is in love with money and possessions. And so notice what Jesus says, verse 40. He calls them fools. You fools. Now, for these teachers of the law, they knew exactly what that meant. Because in the Old Testament, a fool is someone who lives without reference to God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The wise person lives in the fear of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, look, you're acting like a fool because you're saying the inside of your life, that doesn't really matter to God. They're living as though all that matters is the external. But God made both, and so he desires and demands that both the outside and inside be clean. Thus he tells them, verse 41, that they should give alms, give to the poor from within. You know, since their problem is greed, well then from the inside they need to want to give. Now notice what Jesus didn't say. He said, you're full of greed, so you need to tithe. He didn't say, you're full of greed, so you need to give this percentage of your money. That's what the Pharisaical attitude loves. Ah, well I give God this much, and the rest is mine. I give this dollar amount, or this many times, or to these organizations, and my conscience is clean. God calls for us to give sacrificially, lovingly, cheerfully, not begrudgingly, not under compulsion, not to check off the box. Not, okay, got to get my 10%, then now I get to go live my life how I want. Oh, well, I, gave, I sent my money to the poor. I don't need to help them anymore. But a lifestyle that flows from within of generosity. It's giving with your left hand, so to speak, that your right hand doesn't even know of. It's a service of love that's not keeping track going, well, you know, I helped at this organization and I did this and then I did this and this. Well, I'm a pretty good person. It's an overflowing that wants to give and is not keeping track. And so these verses are showing hypocrisy, the playing the part that Jesus condemns. You know, outwardly, they look like they love God and are faithful to Him. However, it's fake because they really love money in their own sin. And this hypocrisy, it's not only just hurting them, it's also hurting others. You've probably experienced this in your own life, how people will interact with so-called Christianity and be put off. So this man who lives in a multi-million dollar home is told by God that God wants him to have a multi-million dollar plane? That doesn't seem to match what Jesus is saying. And the hypocrisy that goes under the name of Christ is destructive. You know, I even have a friend, one of his biggest reasons he no longer attends a church is the hypocrisy of televangelists robbing from widows, from poor people, as they continue to live in their wealth. Well, along with it being a blight on the church, we have to realize here the false gospel of moralism. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, moralism is the idea that all the Bible is about is really teaching us just to be good people. Well, that's not the message of the Bible. You know, it is a strong emphasis in Scripture that we should obey, that we should follow the laws. Yet, God wants more than moral people. He demands holy, perfect people. A holiness that we can't earn on our own. 
that had to be purchased with his blood. And yet, sadly, many people, if you went out and said, what's the Christian message? Well, it's basically like any other religion. You just need to go be a good person. You follow these ideas, you follow these teachings, and then you're good. And yet, Jesus here is actually condemning good behavior. You know, it's a sad reality that one of the biggest dangers to your godliness can be your own goodness. One of the biggest dangers to knowing God can be how good you think you are. And that can keep you from God. Al Mohler states it well. He says, Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. You can be raised right. You can be a great citizen. You can be a wonderful neighbor, a great spouse, wonderful employee, and be going to hell. You know, hell is sadly going to be filled with very moral, upstanding people. Because God's kingdom is not about who was good enough. It will be about who was made perfect through the shed blood of Christ. Thus, Jesus is calling all people, even righteous people, quote-unquote, like the Pharisees, to repent of their sins and trust in Him alone. That they and we need to realize, look, the change I need is not no longer going to a bar and now drinking sweet tea, no longer gambling but now playing penny poker with the guys. Not all these external changes. What I need is from within to be made a new creature so that before God I might be pure. And so Jesus is asking, are you playing a part? Are you thinking you're fine because you have set up all these external things in your life? And yet if the truth were known, you love your money. You love possessions. You're craving people's approval. Are you playing a part? However, the issue with the religious leaders is not just the hypocrisy of being clean on the outside. Rather, Jesus is going to condemn them in three ways because they really major on what's trivial. And we see that in the second section, verses 42 through 44, majoring on the trivial. And Jesus calls, woe to you. Now, this is not like, whoa, horsey. It's not that type of woe. It's the woe saying there's danger. Watch out. Like, whoa, watch out. Those are live wires. Or, whoa, watch out. That floor was just mopped. Or, whoa, watch out. You're living in rebellion to God. And Jesus here is going to declare three woes. First, woe because they're sticklers for the trivial and carefree about what's really important. Well, why do I say that? Well, because they're tithing. They're giving 10% of their herbs. Uh, some of you may have an herb garden. It's normally the smallest part of your garden. There you are counting out your basil leaves. One, two, three, four, nine for us. One basil leaf for God. Nine mints for us. One mint leaf for God. And down to the littlest thing in their life, they're making sure we tithe, we did our part. And yet, they don't care about justice and loving people. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, so stop tithing and just care about love and justice. No, notice what he says in verse 42. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Jesus says you should do both. 
He says this because Deuteronomy 14.22 says, You shall tithe of all the seed of your field. And thus it was good to obey the law. You know, sadly, people in all areas of life, we swing from one extreme to the other. Oh, I'm set free from legalism. I'm set free from thinking by going to church, wearing the right clothes, doing all these things, God loves me. Oh, it's wonderful freedom. So God doesn't care about what I do. So I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. I can send it up. Well, that's not what Jesus just said. He didn't say what you do doesn't matter. He actually said do both. But realize, get them in proportion. There's some things that are not that important, though still important, and some things that matter a lot. Imagine afterwards you leave here and you go out and you order a hamburger, and as the waiter's taking your meal, you say, but no pickles on the hamburger. And then they come back and they hand you a nice side salad. And you go, well, well I didn't order this. And they go, whoop, I didn't give you pickles, did I? You're like, well, okay, you got that part of my order right. But the big thing was, I wanted the beef. You messed up. Don't just focus on the one little thing you got right. Notice the big thing. And here the Pharisees are so, hey, well, we got the pickle right. We're good. And Jesus is saying, well, what about loving people? What about making sure there's justice and fairness? You know, y'all are the leaders of your society. You should care about this. And this has been a consistent prophetic rebuke of the religious leaders throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 5.1, it says, Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seek truth, that I may pardon her. Or, we read earlier, Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, is what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Imagine someone who's stealing from their company, cheating on their spouse, but they say to themselves, well, I go to church. I give a lot. I serve on committees. Good Baptist if you serve on a committee. I do all these things. I'm okay. Jesus says, you fool. You can't let minor things that might be good in and of themselves outweigh the fact that you're cheating and adulterous, that you don't care about love and justice. And yet time and time again, we let our little internal camera, so to speak, focus on the good things we've done. We find some one good thing we've done, and then we use that to excuse all the other stuff. But one time, I helped someone across the street. I remember that. God, I hope you remember that too. I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus is saying, do you love mercy? Are you concerned for those around you who are in distress? Maybe it's financial stress. Maybe it's emotional or relational stress. Are you concerned at all? Well, I would help someone if I knew they were in need. Well, have you structured your life so that you only know people who don't have needs? There are plenty of needs in our society. Just open your eyes. I'm sure there's people, neighbors, co-workers, who are going through a rough situation with children or a spouse or finances. Have you even taken the time to say, how are you doing? You probably maybe can't meet all their needs, but 
Are you concerned? Do you care? Or, well, I go to church. I make sure my kids learn memory verses. Uh, I, do, I do these things. It's okay. I'm a good person. Jesus is declaring that that is not all that he wants. Well, in verse 43, Jesus declares a second woe because all they care about is man's praise. They love the best seats in the synagogues. It reads, and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they care about the applause of men having high social standing. They want the seats of honor where they're greeted. Now, that doesn't mean that people come up and say, well, hello. They had this formal, elaborate process for greeting the teachers of the law. and They liked it when the person finished reading off all their accomplishments, and then they come on stage. Da-da-da. That's me. Yes, I, I have all those degrees. Yes, that's me. Respect me. And they're wanting, basically, the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, this is a subtle temptation that will never and has never gone away. It's the desire that our peers, those around us, will love us. You know, peer pressure is not just a teenage issue. It doesn't matter if you're a university professor or you're flipping burgers. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're rich or poor, if you're young or old. No matter what your position in life, people can commend you and go, oh, you're wonderful. Or they can condemn you and say, oh, you're horrible. And all of us have a desire for people to say, we love you. None of us in this room goes, I really don't care at all what anyone thinks. And that's not a bad thing because Jesus tells us he'll one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't go, well, we don't actually care, God. We only care what I think. No, we should want people to say, you're doing a good job. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, do we want their approval more than God's? And at some points in our life, those two will go into the ring together. Are you going to get the approval from God on this or the approval from everyone else? You know, it may be that it's over your willingness to engage in certain activities. And because you won't, you won't have friends. It may be your stance on certain moral issues due to the Bible's teaching. It may be even your belief about God in this world. You know, it could play out in so many different ways, but wherever it is, there's this fight. These people are going to reject me if I stay loyal to what God has told me. And so we need courage and boldness to be gracious and stand firm. You may even know, look, if I take this stance, I will no longer get a promotion. That group of friends will never invite me to go out with them to lunch again. Those people may not even talk to me. And yet, we need to see the wonderful joy of being approved by God, hearing from Him. Well done. And so internally, when you waver, because we all do, oh, I really like those people and I wanted them to invite me, and they just invited me for the first time, and now they brought up this issue that I know they all disagree with me on. Oh, could I maybe just, oh well, crack a joke and move on? And yet, Jesus is warning the Pharisees and us, are you living for the approval of men? Well, then you can't be living for mine. Paul says it very clearly, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant 
of Christ. Well, Jesus declares a third woe, for they are like unmarked graves, he says. Verse 44. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to understand their cultural context. And that is that if they, as a Jew, went by a tomb, not just walked by it, but got in contact with the tomb or a dead body, they became unclean. Thus, if they're walking along and there's a grave, but they don't see it, and, oh, I just stepped on it. They are now... For a certain period of time, till they go to the temple, do all these things, they're ritually unclean. Now the irony here is remember what a Pharisee is. They're the ones who've separated themselves, thinking by separating ourselves, we make ourselves clean. And yet Jesus is actually saying, when people come to you, you're an unmarked grave. By people coming to you, Pharisees, you make them unclean. You know, the sad irony couldn't be stronger. They think we're the path to life. We're the path to purity. And Jesus says, no, in fact, you're the path to death. You're the path to impurity. Well, we can thank God that these are just issues of the past. If only that were the case. You know, we too can get all bent up and get all out of shape for the silliest of reasons. We can get consumed with trivialities while ignoring God's image that is around us that we should be loving and caring about. And Jesus again is saying to all of us, are you just playing a part? Are you acting like you love me, but you really don't show it because you don't care about my image that's right in front of you? You know, we can care more about what people think than what God thinks. We can care more about what they think about us than actually serving them. And we can feel so smug. Well, I thank God I'm not like those bums that never mow their yard. Their kids are running around wild and living off the government. I go to church. I mow my yard. My kids wear nice clothes. Thank God I'm not like those self-horrible People, I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus says, you fool. How about you go over and help them mow their yard? How about you reach over and care for them? Instead of looking down your nose and thinking, well, I've separated myself from those people. Are you just playing a part? And so now Jesus is going to have to interact with someone else because there's this irony. Verse 45, one of the teachers of the law says, well, hey, Jesus, when you say that, you're condemning us. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to offend anyone. I I take all that back. I didn't mean that. No, he doesn't say that at all. You notice, and you all know this, but we have to realize sometimes the message of God is offensive. Now, we need to make sure the way we say it and the way we live is not making it offensive. But sometimes it doesn't matter how well you phrase it, what manner you use. If you say the truth, some people will be angry. You know, people just don't like to hear they're sinners. They don't like to hear they're estranged from God and that they have no hope. Our selfish pride wants to say, no, no, I'm good enough. How dare you say I'm not a righteous person? And so our message may be our offensive, but our manner never should be. And so we have to guard to make sure that we're not letting 
ourselves be offensive. That we're letting it be the message. And in our polarized society, we need to make sure that we are still loving people who are getting offended by us. We can't just write them off, well, they hate our message, so we're not going to talk to them. We should seek to be friends with atheists, with Muslims, with, can I say it? Democrats. And others. We should be seek to be friends with socialists, independents. I could even say Republicans. Whatever the group that you think is the evil outcast that you should never talk to. We are called to go forth and love them. Again, that doesn't mean accepting everything about them. It may mean, at times, we need to say, well, that's untrue, and they may offend them. But being, we cannot let their offense at us allow us to retreat into our little groups and go, oh, well, everyone hates us. We're just going to love each other. We must continue to go out as salt and light. And Jesus here is willing to do that. And so he calls three more woes. First, in verse 46, he declares woe on the lawyers because they're placing incredibly heavy burdens on the people, spiritual burdens. Now these lawyers are teachers of the law, not people who go into courts. And here, they are saying, well, you need to do all these things, but they don't actually do it themselves. We see a little bit of picture of this in Matthew 5. For there, they make promises, but they swear by heaven, not by God. And then, oh, well, I can break my promise because I swore by heaven, not by God. And they are experts at twisting the law so they don't have to obey it. But for others, their commands are oppressive. The religion they portray causes them to stumble under the load. Yet Jesus, in contrast, says, My burden is easy and my yoke is light. You may be familiar with Martin Luther. In his quest to be made right with God, he went to cathedrals and one had these long steps going up. And on every step, he would kneel and pray. And then he would, on his knees, go up to the next step. So by the top step, his knees were all bloodied. He would, in confession, confess sins for hours so that the priest would get annoyed with him and say, would you bring a real sin to confess to us? Over and over, he's trying to do all these things to be made right with God. And many today are still living under this oppressive burden. I have to do all these things to please God. Now for some, it may not be the oppressive burden for God. It might be, can I ever make my spouse happy? Can I ever make my parents happy, my coach? And they're living this life over and over, this oppressive burden that's placed on them, and they never know, have I done enough? Well, yesterday God was happy, but today he's angry. Well, yesterday I did this and my parent was happy, and today they're yelling at me, what's going on? I did this yesterday and my coach was cheering me on, and now he's yelling at me, what's going on? Jesus, in response to all that, says, I'm enough. I will take your burden from you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So find rest. Find joy. Find peace in Him. You don't allow all these false religious ideas to weigh you down. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. Yes, again, there are things out of a response of love that we might need to do. But his burden is easy. His yoke is light. So we can rest in him. Now that message is not what the teachers of the law are saying, so Jesus is rebuking them. But he rebukes them a second way in verses 47 
to 51, and that is that they continue killing the prophets. Now here it's interesting because it doesn't seem like they're killing the prophets. Actually, they're building wonderful tombs for them. And so they're going, well, Jesus, you really got that one wrong. Look, we just made this nice new headstone for this prophet. We honor him. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The fact that you build a nice tombstone, but then still persecute and kill the people who are saying the exact same message as that guy, show that you aren't really honoring them. You're playing a part. Externally, everything looks like, oh, yes, we love this prophet. But then this guy comes and says the exact same message, and you kill him. That's not honoring the prophets. Honoring the prophets is honoring their message. You know, some have said the only prophet they honor is the dead prophet. And so Jesus concludes and says, look, judgment's going to come upon you. Judgment from all along, from Abel to Zechariah, literally from A to Z, first to last. All of the judgment from before is going to come upon you. Because with greater revelation becomes a greater culpability. And so Jesus is saying, look, you didn't just have good prophets. You have the Son of God in front of you. And so there is a greater culpability upon you. So then in verse 52, he gives them a third woe. And it kind of mirrors the third woe to the Pharisees. And that is that they've taken away the key of knowledge. What does the key do? Well, it unlocks the door. It lets you in. And yet the Pharisees and the lawyers think, well, we have the law. We understand We'll explain to you how to get in, how to know God. And Jesus is saying, actually, you've hidden it. You promise life, but you're actually death. And so both groups are doubly condemned. Because not only are they themselves kept from God, but by their teachings they keep others as well. But notice, sadly, the response. Verse 53, So the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. If they don't hear Jesus' words and go, well, thank you. We're so glad that you've opened our eyes to see that we're actually on the way to death. No, they seek to catch Jesus, to capture him. And so Jesus' words here, really calling us to several things. First, they call us to have discernment. You know, everything that appears a certain way is not actually that way. Someone may come sell you a Rolex. You go, wait, 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 say that again. I was looking for a Rolex. Oh, well, you know, it's just a little different. It's still got little hands that go around. It's not the same thing. You know, someone externally can have a zeal for God, but that doesn't mean internally they love God. You know, because they're on... Christian television or Christian radio or have a lot of books or have a blog or hold a Bible and walk around as they preach. That doesn't mean even I love God. You have to have discernment to look past what you see to go, well, what's really the message? What's really the lifestyle they're leading? As well, this should cause all of us, myself included, to be humbly vigilant, to root out the spiritual hypocrisy that is in our lives and maybe even in our church. You know, sadly, many people never even consider Christianity because of those who profess to be Christians. Of course, we're never going to be sinless, and that's not what I'm talking about. Yet, sadly, many Christians are just fine 
knowing that Deacon Bob or Miss Jones is cheating on their husband, cheating on their spouse, has a horrible reputation in the community, but, oh, they can still be a leader in our church. That's no big deal. And it destroys the witness of Christ. And so we need to be humbly vigilant to make sure the gospel is shown to be pure. And it, even you might be playing the part, hiding behind the mask of Christianity. You know, this is, for me, not a very abstract message. It's very personal. Until I was 17, I was raised a Christian home, still was after 17, but I knew all the right answers. I could tell you all the Bible verses. I could have told you the plan of salvation. been baptized. I'd made a profession of faith, and yet inside, I craved the approval of my peers. Inside, I knew there were certain commands God gave me that I had no desire to obey at all, and I wasn't going to. Inside was not what was seen on the outside. And it took God's compassionate judgment and firm grace to break me and rebuild me and to show me the reality of what was going on inside. Now you might be thinking, well, there's no way I can admit to all the hypocrisy that's going on. What's everyone going to think? And then sadly, you're still trapped living in the fear of others. In Proverbs 29, one says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You know, there is hope now. There is healing now. So take off the mask and be real. Now playing the part, actually though, can kind of seem to give us control of our life. Because I get to portray what I want everyone to think about me. And yet, one day, the mask is going to be taken off by God. He knows whether you're playing a part. So don't wait till the final curtain call to be shown to just be an actor. Trust in God who forgives, who cleanses and makes all things new. He's the God who we could say in a sense played a part. Because Jesus came and what did he do? He played a role that wasn't what was real. He took our sin. He was never a sinner. And yet he said, I will take that role. I will be their substitute. I'll play that part for them. Where your condemnation and wrath goes on me. And I'll play that part so you don't have to play a part. So that you can know that when you're real with God, he doesn't go, then I'm never hanging out with you. Ah, I now know what you're like. And I'm separating myself from you. No, he says, I played that part so you would be honest and real and I'll welcome you. So don't play a part. Come fully and honestly before him knowing that he will forgive, cleanse, and welcome you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, protect us all from the hypocrisy that wants to well up in us. Lord, there are desires in us to be all that we should not. And we ask for your empowering spirit to give us joy and hope and confidence in you. Lord, that we would love you more than we would love our sin or the approval of others in this world. Lord, would you give us that grace to not play the part, but be open and real with you and others. We thank you for your mercy that welcomes us when we do. 
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.